Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host Craig Lubo speaks with his guest, Alan Rostrom, William R. Jacques, constitutional law scholar and professor of law, as well as associate dean of students at UMKC School of Law. Alan Rostrom joined the faculty in 2003, teaches and writes in the areas of constitutional law, tort law, products liability, and conflict of laws. Before becoming a teacher, Alan Rostrom worked in Washington, D.C. as a senior staff attorney at the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, where he was part of a nationwide litigation effort that included lawsuits brought against gun manufacturers by several dozen major cities and counties. Professor Rostrom's research and writing has had significant impact on several areas of law. He suggested a new approach to regulation of high-powered sniper rifles, and that approach was subsequently enacted into the law in the District of Columbia and incorporated into proposed federal legislation introduced in the U.S. Senate. We'll play the calendar in the middle of our hour. Today we're going to have a legislative update on all the criminal justice ordinance that passed in 2022. Advocates achieved important changes in criminal justice policy in 2022 to challenge extreme sentencing, expand voting rights, and advance youth justice. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Okay, this is Craig Lubo, and thank you for joining us on this Monday morning. I have with me Alan Roston, and as Terry indicated in the intro, he is a constitutional law expert and teaches at uh, UMKC School of Law. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. So we're going to talk about cases and legislation beginning from last year through this year and what we anticipate may come down next year. Um, We're going to start with Supreme Court cases and then move to the appellate court cases. And finally, um, if we have enough time, we'll talk about Missouri and Kansas, and that's where we might get into some legislation as well. Okay, let's spend, most of our listeners are familiar with it, but in case there's a few that haven't heard about it, spend maybe about one minute or two talking about Dobbs case, since that was probably the biggest case. Sure. So, you know, first of all, I guess everyone is familiar with Roe versus Wade. It's probably one of the most uh, recognized and known Supreme Court decisions. Back in 1973, the Supreme Court decided that, at least in some circumstances, there's a right for a person to choose to have an abortion. And that was the law of the United States for about 50 years. And and throughout that time, you know, it was extremely controversial. And there had been an earlier time when people really expected it to be overruled. You had Ronald Reagan as the president and then the first George Bush as president. And these were presidents who said that they were going to appoint justices who would overrule Roe versus Wade. And uh, they had a number of opportunities to appoint justices. And so it really seemed like in the early 1990s that Roe versus Wade would be overruled. 
And it didn't happen, and I think that surprised people. Several of the judges said, you know, even if I didn't necessarily agree with this decision in the first place, it has been the law of the country, and expectations have grown up around it, and we should not change it. We should leave it as it is. So this is the idea of sometimes they'll use the phrase stare decisis, which is a Latin phrase for let the, let the decision stand, respect the precedent. But over time, you know, we can talk more generally about this, but the makeup of the Supreme Court has changed over the years, particularly in about the last five years. And there is now a, a more conservative, uh, solid majority. It used to be more split, and it could swing either way, and it's just as a more clear-cut majority. And so in the Dobbs case, they did decide to take the fairly dramatic step of overruling Roe versus Wade. And so they're not saying that abortion must be prohibited. They're just saying the Constitution doesn't have any impact on the issue one way or the other. That's essentially the essence of their ruling is to say, look, the Constitution just doesn't address this. It doesn't mention the issue of abortion or reproduction, childbearing in general. It just doesn't mention privacy. It doesn't mention any of this. And we think this issue should have been left to the voters and the, the legislators, either at the federal or state level, which might be an issue. Uh, but they said it's just not something the Constitution speaks to anymore. Okay. The, when you look at the rationale and stuff, yeah. The original decision was based upon privacy. Yeah. Where was the, what constitutional principles um, did they use to come up with that privacy idea to start with? I think it was Justice Blackman, if I recall. Yeah, he wrote the opinion in Roe versus Wade. Right. And, and there was an earlier decision that was very significant, uh, the Griswold case about in the 1960s saying that you have a, a constitutional right to have access to birth control, to contraception. And then that sort of set the stage for Roe versus Wade, which was written by Harry Blackman. That was really, the, in my mind, that's the most interesting and difficult issue about the Griswold case and Roe versus Wade is if you feel that there should be a constitutional right to make your own decisions about this vitally important per and very personal area of your life, where, where in the Constitution is that? What exactly is the right? The justices, even those who wanted to vote in favor of such a constitutional right, really had to struggle with that. In some ways, to be honest, I think it really is one of these issues where people just feel like, you know, there, there are just certain things, there ought to be a right to them. And it may not be as explicit in the Constitution. If we could go back in time and address the people who wrote the Constitution, we might you know, suggest to them they could have been more clear about addressing some of these things, but they didn't. And yet, if you feel pretty strongly that there should be such a right, what, where are you going to say that it is? So they, they proposed a number of different ideas in the Griswold case and in the Roe versus Wade case. I mean, originally in Griswold, uh, Justice uh, Hugo Black wanted to base it on, uh, or I'm sorry, William, William O. Douglas, Justice William O. Douglas wanted to base it on the idea of the First Amendment, which seems sort of strange, but he was trying to find something, and he said, well, the First Amendment, you know, gives you freedom of speech and the right to assemble, and, and, and it's been interpreted to include a right of association, so that would be an association with another person, and so that would somehow include a right to birth control, and the other judges kind of mocked him for this and said, really, the first freedom of speech, and you're going to get a right to birth control out of that? 
So they sort of drifted away from that. They talked a little bit about the Ninth Amendment. Although that doesn't necessarily not make sense when you consider what they did with corporate personhood, which yeah. equally is yeah. not uh, really speech. There are many, yeah, there are, yes, it gets stretched to include a lot of things that might not be, you know, might not be obvious initially. But so they talked about the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment is sort of obscure, but says, uh, unclear what it's supposed to mean, but it says basically that the fact that some, they were worried that listing certain rights in the Constitution might imply that no other rights exist. And so they put in a provision in the Ninth Amendment to say, don't assume that because something is, some rights are enumerated, don't assume that others are, are don't exist by, by the fact that they're not mentioned here. So that might imply, in other words, that there are other fundamental rights that aren't necessarily mentioned in the Constitution yet might exist. And it could include some kind of a right to privacy, but it can include other things as well. People will talk about it, for example, as covering some kind of a right to defend oneself or maybe some kind of a right to you know, have a business or work or something that's not otherwise mentioned in the Constitution specifically. And then they also sort of mentioned the idea of the 14th Amendment, which does talk on the one hand about liberty. So that could be construed pretty broadly to include any sort of right or freedom. But on the other hand, it talks about your liberty being protected in the sense that you get due process of law. So you get a process. So it's more obviously relevant to things like when you're in court and you have, you know, procedures that are followed and that sort of thing. You get a fair trial and that sort of thing. And they also talked about this idea that some rights, the First Amendment and the Third Amendment and the Fourth Amendment, have what they call penumbras, meaning that they, the, the general idea of them, they may literally talk about certain things, but they sort of have this overall penumbra or aura or just the vibe of them is that you should be able to make certain decisions for yourself. So they as once they got to Roe versus Wade, they decided to sort of, they had all these ideas floating around in kind of a jumble, and they zeroed in more specifically on, well, the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment gives you a right to have your, your liberty protected, and maybe there are just some things, it's just not the government's business. It can't be due process of law. There's no process they could give you that would be due or fair and appropriate to take away certain rights from you, certain decisions that you'd be able to make for yourself. So that's really what they wound up sort of basing it on. But that obviously left, it left a difficulty. Some people were very critical of that idea that you're, you're, you're recognizing a right to privacy when it's not explicitly there anywhere in the Constitution. Is there a chance that Roe v. Wade could be revived on the theory of the Ninth Amendment? It's certainly possible. I mean, if the Supreme Court's you know the membership of the, the membership of the Supreme Court changed, and that's why Roe versus Wade got overruled in the Dobbs case. If the membership of the Supreme Court continues to change over the years, it would certainly be possible that they could go back in the other direction. And one would imagine that they would probably write a decision, even if it reached somewhat the same conclusion as Roe versus Wade. I'm sure the reasoning of it would not be exactly the same. They might emphasize more the Ninth Amendment. Uh, they might. I guess what would what I what I might expect is they might emphasize more the idea of the Fourteenth Amendment's protection equal protection clause. This is something that uh, Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was certainly an advocate for reproductive rights, she had worked on those issues 
in conjunction with the ACLU, for example, before even becoming, when she was a professor, before she became a judge. So she was as uh, strong of a supporter of, of reproductive rights as one might be. And yet she was critical of the reasoning in the Roe versus Wade decision. She, she didn't like the idea that it sort of emphasized, and, and to some extent it really emphasized the rights of the doctor as opposed to the, 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 the person, the woman who'd be making this decision. And so she was critical of it. And she said, you know, I really wish it had been ba the reasoning of the decision had been based more on the idea of equality the idea that everyone, man and woman, has an equal right to participate in society and to decide the course of their lives, and that men have just inevitably the way reproduction works and pregnancy and that sort of thing, they have more of an ability to control uh, that what responsibilities they're gonna have and children and that sort of thing, and women need that equal, that equal ability to make decisions and plan their lives, and it, it enables them to be equal members of society. And so she talked about how she, in some ways, she felt that Roe versus Wade, you know, wasn't, it wasn't, even though she agreed with the outcome, it wasn't quite the decision that she would have liked, and maybe there could be some way in which it could be rewritten, as you suggested, that would emphasize that idea more. One of the things in the Dobbs case that Justice Thomas mentioned is that he thought they should revisit the LGBT marriage equality ruling. Yes. And when you listen to what he says about that, I mean, you would have to really also revisit the case where they said um, bans on interracial marriage. That, that would have to be revisited under his reasoning. It's possible. Um, the, yeah. Which is kind of bizarre given the fact that he's in interracial marriage. That's true. So, um, but do you see that as a real threat? Do you think any of the other justices, I know a couple of them specifically said that it was not on the line. It's so. a, that's one of the most interesting questions coming out of the Dobbs case is, you know, what next? What will be the issues that arise next? And this is certainly one of them. They made it very clear that the majority of the court is not, that they don't believe in a, a general right to privacy, or even this, the term substantive due process is used. It's this idea that the due process clause does not merely give you a right to a fair process, like when you're in court, you get a trial and that sort of thing, but that there are certain, like I said, it's substantive due process is the idea that there are certain things that are just not the government's business. They shouldn't be telling you what to do, whether to have children or not have children and so on, or who to marry. And so they, the, the majority of the Supreme Court tried very hard to limit the impact of their decision and the logic of what they were saying to just Roe versus Wade and abortion. They over and over again in the, in the majority opinion by uh, Samuel Alito, they simply said abortion is different. And the fact that we're overruling Roe versus Wade should not be, don't assume or don't think that it means that any other decisions are changing. And that's, they're walking a very difficult line because the logic of much of their decision would imperil other important precedents. I mean, they're saying unless the Constitution specifically addresses and, and creates a right, or you can see it very clearly established in American history, 
That's a big part of their decision. They go all the way back into like, you know, the 14th century in English law and that sort of thing to talk about the way abortion was regarded for, for many centuries. But one of their key points is they say there was not considered to be a right to have an abortion in 1791 when the U.S. Constitution was adopted or in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution. There just historically wasn't a right to, to this. And so the, the logic of that would be, well, if any other right that's not specifically in the Constitution uh, or has the, and, and lacks this clear historical record back, dating back to 1791 and 1868, it should likewise not be a right. And that would certainly mean overruling the Griswold case about a right to have access to uh, birth control. It would perhaps mean overruling Loving versus Virginia, the, the uh, case from the 1960s about interracial marriage. On the, that case was based in part on due process. It was also based in part on equal protection. And one might say, well, the equal protection part of it could still justify the same result. But again, if you take this historical approach, it's very questionable whether what people intended in 1868, let alone 1791, about interracial marriage. It does not, in other words, it does not seem clear that, that when they passed the 14th Amendment in, in, after the Civil War that they meant to create a right to interracial marriage. It wasn't, a, it wasn't treated as a right in many places over the next century. So those decisions could go down, as well as the Lawrence versus Texas case, uh, in which they struck down the law in Texas and other states, including Missouri and Kansas, that you know made it a crime to have personal, private, uh, you know, consensual sexual activity between two people of the same sex, and then the Obergefell case more recently in 2015, which established a right to marriage equality, that same-sex marriage. So, all of those things could be in jeopardy. On the other hand, the Supreme Court tried to say all of those are different on the ground simply that they don't, unlike abortion, they do not involve this issue of life. They don't involve this issue of uh, the potential life of the unborn person or fetus, and so therefore they don't have all the same issues as abortion. But it's kind of seemed like a cop-out or like a, an unfair distinction of their own decision. The decision wasn't based specifically on that. It was based on the lack of a historical tradition and an explicit textual basis for the right. So all of those decisions could be in jeopardy, but most of the justices are telling us, no, don't worry, they won't be. Clarence Thomas being the outlier or the exception on that, he's very emphatic, we should overrule all these things. We should go back and revisit all of the decisions we've ever made that aren't squarely based on the text or the historical tradition of it being a constitutional right. Okay. For those who have just joined us, we are talking to Alan Rostron. And he is a constitutional law expert and teacher, professor of law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law. And we talked about various cases. The Congress recently passed, I believe it's called the Respective Marriage Act, which essentially codif codifies um, the marriage equality. If the Supreme Court were to revisit that and, and retract that and say that, no, it's not guaranteed by the Constitution, what would that do to the new law, 
particularly in regard to whether or not it would be enforceable against the states. So that, that piece of legislation that was enacted would help to it, at least ensure more marriage equality than it, it would at least help to offset the risk of the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court could do. So right now, there's still, Obergefell has not been overruled, and so there's still a, a right to marriage equality or to have a same-sex marriage throughout the United States and to have that marriage recognized and respected throughout the United States. The concern, and so right now, that, that legislation that Congress enacted is redundant or unnecessary. It doesn't really have an effect. But the concern is that the Supreme Court's decision could be overruled. If it were, this would at least give some protection, restore some protection that the Supreme Court would be taking away. But it wouldn't restore everything. That the law passed by Congress does not mean that all states must allow same-sex marriages. It simply says that if a state decides to allow same-sex marriages, the other states must give recognition to those marriages. Which is the same as the fair faith and yes. credit. Yes, it's the full faith and credit issue, yeah. that, which is kind of where we were at you know, for a little while, even before Obergefell. The idea was, look, some states, you know, Iowa, for example, had same-sex marriage or, you know, Vermont or Massachusetts or Connecticut or whatever, but other states did not, right? Missouri did not or Kansas did not. And the idea was you could go to another state and if you had a same-sex marriage, you could then have it recognized. Missouri had to recognize it, uh, essentially, uh, and give you the same benefits or legal treatment of being married. If, if, if the Supreme Court's decision on, on same-sex marriage is overruled, this piece of legislation would restore that situation. Missouri, for example, would not be required to allow people to have same-sex marriages, but if they had one from another state, Missouri would have to treat it as a marriage for purposes of taxes or, or government benefits or whatever it may be. So it would be a step backward, a pretty significant step backward for marriage equality, but at least it wouldn't be as bad. So one other question on this line, then we'll move to another issue. We talked about the Griswold case and birth control. Now, more recently, there was the Hobby Lobby decision course, that dealt with coverage and insurance, a little bit different angle. But does that case in any way chip away at the Griswold case? I guess it does in some sense. I mean, it's a little different issue. It's the, you know, it rises out of these requirements, legislative requirements to provide insurance coverage for the employees. And it really is an example of how the Supreme Court has been more and more protective of religious freedom. And I think in general that's a good thing. I mean, I'd like people to be able to have religious rights. But the difficulty is that often one person's religious rights will clash with someone else's constitutional or other interests in some way. So you have a business like Hobby Lobby. It's a large company, but it's you know not a publicly traded one. It's a, it's a privately held company by a family that has strong religious views, and they believe it's wrong for them under their religious views to cover uh, contraception under their insurance plans for employees. And the Supreme Court ruled in their favor and said, you know, you don't have to do this. You don't have to cover this, which, again, it's, it's an, ex one, an example of one of many cases in which the Supreme Court has been giving more and more protection to religious freedom. And it does, to some extent, undercut, as you said, it undercuts Griswold in the sense that that decision would otherwise work to ensure that everybody has sort of equal access to uh, to birth control. 
But the Supreme Court's made a lot of decisions like that. Just last year, there was a case about a, a high school football coach who would prey on the field, and the Supreme Court ruled in his favor on that sort of establishment clause issue about religion. In cases about COVID, the Supreme Court has been very strong on protecting religious argument, religious interest arguments about being able to continue to have church services during the COVID pandemic. They've made decisions about government programs. One case was from here in Missouri about playground services. Another was in, uh, in other states have been about, you know, school voucher programs or uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia about Catholic social services participating in foster care services. They're, they really are protecting people from being excluded or, or, or in their view, limited in some way because their religious uh, rights give them a, a different point of view. Okay. For those who just joined us, we are talking to Alan Rostron, um, talking about Supreme Court decisions, and um, he is the professor of law at University of Missouri, Kansas City, UMKC, and we are going to take our first break, and we'll have our calendar coming up during the break. Support for KKFI by City Year Kansas City. As an education equity nonprofit, City Year works inside Kansas City Public Schools, supporting students emotionally and academically so that they can thrive inside and outside of the classroom. To learn more about City Year's service and open positions, visit cityyear.org. Every Tuesday from 6 to 6.30 p.m., Radioactive Magazine, a locally produced public affairs program, spotlights individuals and organizations in our community that deal with ideas and issues of social and political significance such as climate change, racial and gender inequality, pay and equity, and much, much more. That's Radioactive Magazine, Tuesdays, 6 to 6.30 p.m., right here on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. KKFI is listening, and your feedback helps to inform our decisions on current and future programming. It's important for your voice to be heard, so let us know what you think about our programming by going online and filling out the KKFI listener survey at kkfi.org slash survey. Now the calendar for the week of December 26th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. For Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense virtual meetings this week, please go to momsdemandaction.org. All are welcome, mothers and others. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. We'll talk to you next year. Happy New Year. Okay, this is Greg Lubo. Thank you for staying with us. And we are still talking to Alan Rostron about constitutional law and various Supreme Court cases. And if we have time, we'll move on to that. If not, he will come back and we'll do another show with him. Um, we want to talk um, next about the 
um, issue of gun regulation. In one case that you mentioned that you wanted to talk about is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. So if you'll talk about that and tell us, based upon the current makeup of the Supreme Court, is there any chance of getting any kind of meaningful gun regulation that will hold up to their constitutional standards? So this is an issue I have thought a lot about. I used to work for a, a gun control organization before I became a professor. And, uh, you know, in that time, in just the time that I've been a professor, uh, this issue has changed significantly. The Second Amendment's become a much more uh, important right, uh, which can limit what legislatures can do with respect to regulating guns. In the, in the Heller case back in 2008, they uh, made a very important decision about this. They said basically that the Second Am Amendment broadly covers the use of guns, not just for you know, military purposes like the National Guard and that sort of thing, but for, for everyone, for private, uh, uh, private uses of guns, like having a gun for self-defense or hunting or, or sports or whatever it may be. And they then, in the McDonald case, they extended that to cover, made it clear that it covers not just the federal government, but state legislation as well. But in all of that, they left a, a really important question unanswered, which is how strong is the right to keep and bear arms? You know, it makes a huge difference. Is it, is it a, a, a right that we have, but, you know, it's subject to reasonable regulation as long as the, the legislature thinks they have a decent reason to regulate guns and it seems pl plausible that there's a safety concern? Will, will the law be upheld? Or instead, is this a really strong right? And, and a lot of the laws we have, a lot of the gun laws we have could be, uh, you know, at risk of being struck down. And the Supreme Court really addressed this more clearly than they had in the past uh, last year in this New York case. It was about, you know, New York has some fairly strict regulations of uh, guns compared to, to most other places in the country. And the Supreme Court looked at that and they said essentially that when you're deciding if something is a violation of the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, you have to look at it from a historical perspective. So this will sound very familiar. We, I was speaking a few moments ago about how they said that on issues like abortion and other, other due process issues, you have to look at it historically. And they said the same thing about the right to keep and bear arms. You basically, the government needs to show, if they're going to have a law be upheld, a regulation of guns, they have to show that it's something that would have been allowed as a regulation of guns back in 1791 when they passed the Constitution or in 1868 when they passed the 14th Amendment. And in a lot of cases, that's just very difficult simply because the world was different 150 years ago, 200 years ago, 200 more years ago. It was very different. Um, you know, maybe on some basic issues. For example, you may be able to find some historical evidence about issues like whether convicted felons would have a right to be able to have a gun or not. But even that is, is difficult. The notion of a felony and how that was treated was very different. But what about modern issues like domestic violence? You know, that just wasn't an issue. Assault weapons didn't exist in, you know, the 1860s or in the, in the 1790s. And let me ask you about that on the felon in possession. Um, the, I think the landmark decision, I don't remember the name, but it was written, if I recall, by Justice Scalia. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty broad, and it seemed like there was just no way you could regulate guns anymore. 
and I'm a criminal defense attorney. Well, that's half of what I do. So when I have these clients I represent who have been charged with felon in possession, should I be arguing this and filing motions to dismiss based upon these very broad anti-gun regulation cases? Many criminal defense attorneys are making those arguments, so you might, you might consider doing so. Certainly, yeah, a lot of them are. That issue hasn't made it all the way to the Supreme Court. It's, it's difficult because, again, you're supposed to look at it from a historical perspective, and one of the, one, then you get into these debates about how would they have viewed a law, in, again, in 1790s, how would they have viewed a law that barred convicted felons from having guns? And one of the things about it is it just, I mean, for most felonies in that era, they would give you, they would execute you. So there just wasn't an issue about whether you'd be able to continue to possess a gun. So it's sort of like, you know, anachronistic or something to even try to answer some of these questions. And so, yeah, those arguments are being made. Uh, Justice Scalia in the Heller case and, and the majority of the Supreme Court, they did try to sort of say, don't assume that all gun laws will be invalid. There may be some kinds that would still be upheld that could still be. Uh, but people are making those arguments. Probably uh, an argument, the strongest argument would be in a situation where someone had a felony conviction, but it was for something that didn't involve violence and that was a long time ago. And then you could make some courts have been, lower courts have been open to the argument that at least in that sort of most appealing situation, maybe there would be something unconstitutional about a lifetime ban on the ability to have a gun and defend yourself if you committed you know, a nonviolent felony 50 years ago and you've been a model citizen ever since. So I think there, that the, you know, whether the Supreme Court will, will rule on that, ever rule on that, and if they would do so on that narrow ground or a broader one and just say, oh, you can't. I don't, I don't think they would say you can't have a ban on felons having guns in general, but maybe a narrow ruling, it's certainly possible. And they just had a case in Texas I believe it was a federal court judge that struck down a gun regulation that they passed this year, which was aimed at regulating access of guns to basically people under 21, because it specified ages 18 to 20. It's another— this judge said that was unconstitutional. That's another difficult issue because if you go back to 1790, they they felt, I probably I think it would be fair to say, they thought that the right to have a gun existed when you were old enough to be in the militia. You'd have to show up for your militia service and you'd bring a gun with you. And so that would be probably at the age of 15 or 16. One of the difficulties with this historical approach is what do you make of that? How, how specific or general should you be when looking back at the historical examples? One way to look at it would be to be sort of general about it and say they accepted age limits, and their age limit may have been 15 or 16. But the important point is that they were okay with age limits for having guns, and if in the modern world it would make more sense for the age limit to be, let's say, 21 to be able to buy a handgun, then we can that can be constitutional. If you're more specific and literal about it, you could say, no, they thought that someone who's 15 years old was old enough to have a gun, and that's that's what we have to go by. That's what the Constitution means, so we have to lower all the age limits, not even just to 18, but I suppose we'd have to lower them to 
15 or 16, even though today a person can't even join the military at 15 or 16. They need to be, you know, at least a little bit older than that, even with their parents' permission. So th this is all, I mean, you hear a common theme running through all of this. This is all an example of the most fundamental divide that exists in constitutional interpretation, which is between the originalist perspective, where you think that constitutional rights should remain the same as they were when the constitutional provision in question was first put into place. And then a, a, an alternative point of view would be to say, no, over time, the world changes, and the Constitution, we have to be able to read it in a, in a more flexible, adaptive way as a living, evolving set of provisions that we accommodate to the modern world. And this is the this is the debate you see running through all of this stuff at sort of an underlying level. And under the historical approach, where do you think the line might be drawn? I mean, could some of these Supreme Court justices say that make draw the line at age 12 and say if you're over 12 you can have a gun? I mean, it's possible. I mean, it, it, you know, they probably wouldn't because I think they mix their originalist philosophy with a sort of a practical recognition of that they don't want to take things too far. Justice Scalia, for example, who was, you know, a very important legal thinker and was certainly an advocate for this originalist historical approach, he said, you know, he said, I'm an originalist, but I'm not a, an absolute zealot about it. I mix it. So he, for example, said there were certain things that would have been permitted uh, as punishments for crimes back in the revolutionary era that even though they didn't regard them as cruel and unusual punishments, he would not want to return back the clock. Even he would not want to turn back the clock. So most of them sort of mix it with, a, they. I would say they are kind of selective, you could say hypocritical, even about their use of, a religion, of, of originalism. When it works for them, they use it to support their decisions. When it doesn't, they're perfectly willing to kind of eh, just kind of dance around it, except perhaps for Clarence Thomas. He is the one who is really hardcore and you could say consistent. You could give him the virtue of consistency. He is very consistent and, and very willing to reach conclusions that some people might find extreme. And I've seen many decisions where even Justice Alito was on the opposite side of Thomas. Yeah, and again, we to go back to Dobbs, we saw just a little <laughs> bit of that where you know they even one's willing to go further than the other. Okay, so let's look at some pending cases that are likely to be decided this coming year. Some of which have been argued. Yeah. Um, you've got three hundred three creative, which I know is out of Colorado. Mm -hmm and involves the, um, the web designer who does not want to um, design the website for a gay couple. So this is this a good example of how one legal decision or one legal uh, change leads to other issues? The Supreme Court about seven or eight years ago decided that there is a, a right to marriage equality, and then that led to the issue of, well, what if there are people who have religious objections to providing goods or services or otherwise participating with a same-sex marriage? Originally, you know, you had some issues with people who worked for the government, county clerks and that sort of thing, 
who didn't want to sign a marriage certificate. And for that, it's pretty clear, look, that's their job. They work for the county or the city. They have to do their job. But what about someone who's got a private business? You know, this is where constitutional law gets difficult. You've got one person's right to be treated equally, but you have someone else's right to their religion and to decide, you know, whether or not to, to serve, serve a certain customer. So there was an earlier case about this. People may recall hearing news about a case about baking a wedding cake. There was a case also from Colorado about that. Somebody didn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. And well, that, I've got one yeah. question before we go to sure. that case, though. In this one with the web designer, my understanding is that she has not been forced to bake a cake. She, it was, she, she filed this preemptively because she believes she might be if, if somebody comes to her, but nobody has actually come to her. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, so it, yeah. does she even have standing to bring this case? They talked about that in, in the Supreme Court argument. They, seem, they didn't spend that much time on it and didn't seem to get too hung up on it. So it sounds like they, that's one way sometimes to decide cases, but it sounds like they were going to go past that and decide that, they're, that, they're, that there was enough of a real legal issue to decide the case. Okay. I mean, the earlier one about the cake had been decided on narrow grounds simply because the the government officials in that case, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, had said some disparaging things about religious objections. They said, oh, I don't want to hear your religious arguments because religion has been used for all kinds of things like trying to justify slavery or the Holocaust. So I, I, I'm, not, you know, I'm not favorable to religious arguments. And the Supreme Court said that, that reveals a bias against religion, and that's not correct. So because that was present in that case, they said, we're not going to reach the larger issue. Now you have this website designer, and it's, it's, it seems very likely the Supreme Court is going to rule in her favor on the grounds of freedom of speech, that designing a website involves a certain amount of creative expression, and that the sh government shouldn't be able to force her to say certain things that she doesn't agree with. Let me ask you this, so if it makes a difference, and I, I think that at least one of the justices kind of alluded to this in the wedding cake case. If it makes a difference when, for instance, in this web design, if they are um, doing, being asked to design a case or website, rather, specifically supporting gay rights or about gay issues in general, or can she just say, I'm not going to design a website for anybody who is gay, even if it has nothing to do with any gay issue? Yeah. In the argument, in the briefs, they get into all this. I mean, how much, in other words, how much really of an infringement or a burden is it on her? And it would depend on the circumstances. Um, how, are, you know, are you just, is the website she'd be creating, does it contain any message, for example, about LGBT issues or equality or that sort of thing? And even they, they talked a little bit about how much real creativity is there in designing such a website. I mean, if you look at what Justice Kagan, for example, said, oh, you know, I've, a couple of my clerks are getting married. I've looked at the websites. They're not that interesting. They are pretty much all the same. It's information about the location of the wedding and travel arrangements and maybe a registry. It's not like it's, and the, the other side try, tried to argue, no, no, it's all very personalized and, 
and there is a lot of individual choice involved in it. And so she would feel like she was, by designing a website, for even if they didn't emphasize the fact that it was a same-sex marriage, it still is. And it would be in some way that she's endorsing it or approving of it or something like that. So they're probably likely to rule in her favor. The big question would be just, well, a, cu- a couple difficult questions about it. One is, can, one is w- which other providers of services would be covered? Singers, video. They sort of suggested if it was something very impersonal, like if, you're, if they're just coming to you to rent tables and chairs, don't complain. You're just, that's not that artistic or, but who knows? Then maybe somebody will, who, who provides furniture will say, no, I'm actually, I design the furniture or I something, you know, they'll try to make it sound like it's more uh, expressive than, than we think it is. The other issue that, that they talked a lot about in that case was how do you distinguish this from other forms of discrimination? What if somebody comes to a website designer or a cake baker and they say, uh, you know, I'd like you to do something for my wedding, and the person, the business says, "Well, we we can't do it because it's an interracial marriage, or it's a, re- relig- a religious marriage that we don't approve of, or it's people who have been divorced, and we don't acknowledge that as being a valid thing." Could, could are we giving business? If we're giving businesses the right to discriminate uh, against same-sex weddings, would we also be allowing them to engage in religious and racial discrimination and that sort of thing? And it's a tough issue for the majority. The conservative majority would say, no, same-sex marriage is different. It's a more recent innovation. It is more controversial to have, it's more mainstream somewhat, at least to have religious objections to it. It's more common. And so they would see it as being uh, distinguishable, but at least as a more theoretical matter, it's hard to say. If you, if you're, if you have a right to make your own private choices and to discriminate, against someone because they're they're LGBT and they're getting married, why wouldn't you also have such a right if you disagree on the grounds of religion or race or or, or anything else? All right. Let's go to um, – let's do affirmative action next, and then we'll come sure. back to another topic. Is there I, – I believe there's a case pending – what is that about and what's likely to happen? So there's two cases together. One's about Harvard University, which is a private school, and one is about the University of North Carolina, which is a public school. But they basically raise the same issue, which is are colleges and universities allowed to consider race in making decisions about admissions? They have been doing so for many years under Supreme Court decisions that basically struck a compromise. They said, you know, so the argument is that, well, it's a, it's a form of racial racial differentiation by the government, and therefore it shouldn't be allowed. And the Supreme Court's decision was, well, it's not, you know, it's not your classic type of racial discrimination where it's being done out of hostility or hatred. It's meant to benefit groups that have been disadvantaged in the past, and so it's a more benign thing, and it, and it should be allowed. And the Supreme Court basically struck a compromise in a series of decisions over the years. And they said, you can, you can take race into account in college admissions to some extent, but you have to do it a certain way. Basically, they said, they said you can't have a quota. You can't have a specific quota, like we're setting aside a certain percentage or a certain number of seats in the class for people from certain you know, ethnic or racial backgrounds. But you could take race into account along with everything else if you do it in a more flexible, holistic way. So you, for example, yeah, if you don't have 
let's say you don't have a lot of students who are Hispanic or you don't have a lot of students who are African-American, you could take that into account and give them, count that as a plus in favor of their application. Just like you could anything else. If you, if you didn't have a lot of people from r- rural areas, you could have a plus for somebody who comes, regardless of their race, you could have a plus for that. Or you don't have a lot of people who are interested in music and you could have a plus for that, et cetera. So that's what schools have done. They, they, they can't have rigid quotas, but they can take race into account as a plus factor that, that benefits some people in their admissions. But over the years, the, a, a, a number of conservative members of the Supreme Court, the number has been building for simply coming out and overruling all of that and saying, you can't treat people differently on the basis of race. They're very emphatic about it. And they say the way to stop racial discrimination is, not to, is to stop treating people on the basis of race, whether you call it affirmative action or it's meant to help this group or hurt that group. It just doesn't matter. We should be the Constitution should be colorblind, and we should treat everybody the same. And it does seem like there is now a majority of the Supreme Court for taking that position. Okay. So let's go back. Um, this will be the last issue I think we'll have time for, is Morvey Harper case, which talks about elections. Um, and the ability of a state court to make a decision that has an impact on federal elections within that state. So what, what is that about? This is a really important case potentially, and it hasn't received, some people have called it one of the most important cases for American democracy that the Supreme Court's ever decided. The basic idea is, you know, we have federal elections every two years, We have for the president every four years, but for Congress every two years. And those elections are run on a state-by-state basis. Missouri runs the federal election for Missouri. Kansas runs it for Kansas. And generally, it's been assumed that that means that the legislature of the state certainly plays a role in determining what election law will be. The governor might have a role as well. The governor might veto some election legislation or sign election legislation. And as you said, the courts might sometimes have decisions to make that relate to this as well. They might be interpreting uh, election-related legislation and applying it. Uh, They might also, in some cases, decide that uh, some election legislation was unconstitutional. There might be something that it violates that's that's within the state's constitution, for example. It's kind of the way it's always been. This Moore versus Harper case is a challenge to that. It is it's what it's really doing is taking the Constitution very, very literally. In the provisions of the Constitution that talks about this, it just uses the word legislature. It says that the time, place, and manner of the congressional elections shall be determined by the legislature of each state. And the presidential elections, when they talk about the Electoral College and all that, it says it'll be done in such manner as the legislature shall direct. So some people, for the first time in history, are interpreting that very literally to mean simply the legislature itself with no input from perhaps the governor, but especially no input from the courts, no ability for the courts to ever question or rule against what the legislature has decided to do with respect to election. So this would be a huge shift from the way things work now. Okay, and just, we've only got one minute left, but does that case in some way make it easier 
for legislatures to engage in gerrymandering? Absolutely. A gerrymandering, there'd really be no limit left on gerrymandering. And it would be up to the legislature. Voters, anything else too. I mean, even as you know, what we saw in 2020 with legislatures threatening to just kind of disregard the results. There, you know, perhaps federal courts might still have a role, but at least the state courts would be. They're not the legislature, and they would have no okay. ability to to intervene. So it seems unlikely the Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of all that. But the way the argument went, but you never know. All right. So for those who've just joined us recently, I've been talking to. Alan Rostron, who is a constitutional law professor at UMKC, and we will be back next week with another topic. Thank you, Alan, and this will be up on our website as a podcast. Rehabilitation and punishment of criminals. Do we have a moral obligation to rehabilitate or punish criminals? The U.S. prison population has been growing since the 1970s and is now the highest per capita rate in the world. More than two-thirds of prisoners are rearrested within three years of their release, with more than half of them in their first year after release. Legislators and psychologists are racing to find a solution to unsustainable prison population growth as living conditions worsen. Punishment has been the traditional approach to prison management, but some European prisons have been successful with a focus on rehabilitation instead. This video will present both approaches to the issue of prisoner treatment backed up by research, as well as my opinion on the subject and what I believe to be the most effective and moral solution. Punishment. Natural law would determine that the right way to handle a criminal offense is for the offender to pay back what they have cost society. This is intended to prevent society from leaning into lawlessness by giving severe consequences to illegal behavior. Punishment maintains respect for the law, defends social norms, and protects people from violent crimes. Legal punishment follows a set of rules so that it is a justified penalty for the crime. Criminal laws must therefore have a punishment for breaking them or they lose their ability to maintain good order. The threat of harm is justified by two ends, deterrence and retribution. Deterrence means that the punishment prevents crimes from being committed in the future. Retribution means that the criminals pay for the crimes that they have committed. The consequentialist reasoning for the punishment is that crime is prevented through deterrence. While it may have negative outcomes for criminals, it has a positive outcome for society by reducing the likelihood of crimes as a whole. As stated before, natural law maintains that a criminal should pay for their crimes to restore the damage they have done to society. The concern in this case is on what is right and not what reduces crime, because the criminals deserve their punishment. Rehabilitation. A study from the National Bureau of Economic Research compared incarceration in Norway with that of the United States. Prisoners in Norway were considered to be broadly similar to those in the U.S., with the prison systems being the major difference between the two. Norway and other European countries have shorter sentences and focus on rehabilitation, while the United States emphasizes punishment and long sentences for crimes. This graph shows the disparity in incarceration rates between the two countries from 1980 to 2014. Recidivism is significantly reduced when prisoners are allowed to gain further education during their prison time and they are more likely to find gainful employment after their sentence. The Northwestern Prison Education Program found a correlation between degrees earned in prisoners and their recidivism, where a higher degree earned resulted in smaller chances the individual would commit a crime in the future. Educated prisoners have more attractive resumes to employers and have a smoother re-entry to society since they can find gainful employment more quickly than if they didn't have an opportunity to better themselves. My opinion on the prison system 
Incarceration creates an underclass with limited socioeconomic mobility. Convicted felons have less access to education and employment. Our approach to justice should focus on rehabilitation to stop the cycle of criminal behavior before it becomes a greater problem. Inmates are people with protected rights and a future ahead of them, so it's up to prisons to ensure they have a chance to reform and succeed upon reentry to society. Individuals with serious mental illnesses are jailed at a rate from 15 to 25 percent, up to five times higher than the general population. Prisons have a moral obligation to treat these inmates and provide an environment where they can improve their health. While this practice may seem like a poor use of funding, it serves the utilitarian goal of maintaining order in society by producing well-adjusted and productive members of society after their term served in prison. Conclusion. The United States faces a unique incarceration crisis of a growing prison population with unsustainable funding to properly handle the inmates' needs. These people in prison are unable to serve any benefit to society at large and are afforded few opportunities to improve themselves or complete their sentence better than they were before it. This results in former criminals reoffending and finding themselves in the prison system time and time again, contributing to an endless cycle of suffering. Rehabilitating criminals will allow them to leave prison healthier, smarter, and ready to contribute to society in meaningful ways so they live a fulfilled life. Finally, I have three discussion questions for you to consider and attempt to find meaningful responses to, as there is not just one right answer. What should be the true goal of incarceration, separating the criminal from society or repaying society? In what situation is the death penalty justified if one exists? Are retribution and revenge the same thing? Why or why not? We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 